First John chapter 3. John begins, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Well, it's only three verses that we're taking a look at this morning, but they're three pretty remarkable verses. You see how John begins this section? He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Now, just in the previous verse, that's the last verse of chapter 2, he's brought up to us the idea of being born of God. First uh, John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So he introduces the thought of being born of him in the last verse of chapter 2, but then his mind just sort of fast forwards to the idea of what does it mean that we're born of him? What does this say about us, and what does it say about God? Well, the first thing John thinks in his mind is it says about God that he loves us. And he wants us to behold what manner of love. Now, you know what it means to behold, don't you? It means to look at it, to study it, to observe carefully. He wants us to carefully look at the love of God, to study it. I'm sure every one of us this morning would really benefit from a good, intense look of the love of God that's been bestowed on us. Well, let's just start with that word there, bestowed. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. First of all, it speaks of a measure of God's love. We're talking about something being bestowed on somebody. You're talking about an abundant giving. If I were to fill this cup up with just about an inch of water and give it to you, you'd hardly say, he bestowed water upon me. I mean, when you say bestowed, it's like a big word, isn't it? It's a big giving. As a matter of fact, in the original Greek, you could translate the same idea here, the love that has been lavished on us. It's a generous giving. God hasn't given us just a trickle or just a little bit of his love. He's bestowed it on it. He's lavished it. Secondly, it speaks of the manner of God's giving of love. When we talk about somebody bestowing something, it's a very one-sided giving, isn't it? It's a giving uh, that isn't really disturbed, uh, deserved. It's a, it's a giving that's, that's given purely out of generosity and love and grace. And that's how God's giving is to us. It's, it's a one-sided giving. And friends, this is a tremendous love of God that John is telling us to come and take a look at it. You know, one thing I've noticed as I've, as I've been a pastor for many years now, as I take a look at people, and I think you can really assess where they are in their Christian life by their understanding of the love of God. And it's not always an easy thing. Because from even before the time that we make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we hear it all the time, don't we? God loves us, God loves us, God loves us. You in this room, you've probably heard it a thousand times that God loves you, you've sung it. One of the first songs you teach your kids or the kids here in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we hear it again and again and again. Jesus loves us. Now, there's a problem with hearing something again and again, is you can become deaf to it. I was talking with a man this week. He just moved into our community, and he has a house that's kind of near some railroad tracks. And the train goes by. You know, it goes by several times a day. 
And I was telling him, you know, in just a few weeks, you're not going to hear that train anymore. It'll go by, and because you've heard it so many times, it won't even register in your mind that the train's going by. And you know how that works. You hear it again and again, and pretty soon you just don't hear it anymore. But he'll have a guest over to his home, and the train will come by. Oh, what's that? What's what, he'll say. I don't hear anything. And then he'll remember, oh, yeah, that's the train. Well, you know, sometimes it's the same way with us hearing about the love of God, isn't it? God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And almost blah, 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 it sounds in our mind. Not that we think the love of God is a small thing, but we just hear it. We sort of become inoculated or, or we just become a, a sort of hardened against hearing it. My friends, you notice something. When somebody really lives and walks in their life with the understanding that God loves them, it changes something. And I don't know what it is. I, I'll meet people who have been Christians 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they'll come up to me and say, you'll never believe what God's doing in my life. He's showing me, and you're waiting for some profound spiritual revelation. You know, he showed me the exact day Jesus is going to return or something strange like that. And they don't say that at all. They say, you never believe what God's doing in my life. He's shown me how much he loves me. He's shown me the greatness of his grace. And they're blown away. And you almost think, well, why didn't they catch that earlier? Well, why do some Christians just not seem to catch on to what the love of God is all about? I'll give you one reason. And I don't mean to sound harsh when I say this, because it's almost going to sound harsh. But I think it's the truth, but you need to understand it in its context. I think one of the greatest things that keeps Christians from realizing and walking in the love of God in their life is pride. Now, it's a very subtle kind of pride. It's a kind of pride that doesn't wear itself out with a big chest and say, I'm so great, everybody should think I'm wonderful. It's not that kind of pride. It's a very subtle kind of pride, but it's pride nonetheless. It's the kind of pride that says, I'm not going to receive God's love until I can consider myself worthy of it. When I can consider myself lovable by God, then I'm going to receive it. You see, that's a very subtle way of saying in our minds, I'm not going to receive God's love until I feel like I've earned it. I won't receive it as a free gift. Friends, you're not going to receive much of the love of God then. Your pride is going to keep you from really receiving and walking in the love of God. The great place to be as a Christian is to realize your complete unworthiness of God's love, but to completely receive that love nonetheless. So pride keeps many people from receiving God's love. I'll tell you another thing it is. Another thing that keeps people from receiving God's love is unbelief. They find it difficult to believe. Maybe they've had some pain or some tragedy in their own life. Maybe there's been a pain or a tragedy in the life of somebody close to them, and they say, I don't know if I can really believe that God loves If God really loved me, how would he allow this to happen to me? Or why would he allow this to happen to the other person? But I think a a third reason why many Christians, and this is the most mystifying to me, I really can't put my finger on it. A third thing that keeps many Christians from really living in and walking in the love of God is just time. And I don't know if I can explain it. It's just time. I really can't say what it is, but I think sometimes it just takes time for a person to come to a fuller understanding of the love of God. It takes time for God to break down those little things in our heart that are sort of pushing Him away from us. Have you ever been in a relationship where somebody really loves you, but somehow, for some reason, you're pushing them away? And you love them, but nonetheless, you're still kind of pushing them away. You want to keep a distance. You don't want to give yourself to them. 
Well, many of you know what that's like in some kind of relationship, and oftentimes that's how we are till God. But when we break down our defenses, or rather he breaks them down, and we finally just sort of surrender to him and let him love us, what a change it is. And then we're in the place, John says, we should be in verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, if you want to know how great this love is, notice here he goes on to say that we should be called the children of God. You see, the greatness of this love is shown that by it we are called children of God. And friends, if you understand what's being said here, it should blow your mind. It should just startle you that God calls us, calls us his children and what this means about his love for us. Let me put it to you this way. God could have looked upon lost humanity, not with love, but with pity. He said, I feel sorry for those guys. Look at them. They're so lost. Their lives are messed up. They're destined for hell. It's a terrible place. I feel sorry for them. I've got to do something to save them. And then he could have sent his son to save us out of the motivation of pity. And that would have been enough. We would have been grateful for that. But God did so much more from that. For example, let's say uh, this week you're driving somewhere and you drive by a corner that you've driven by many times before and there's a, uh, uh, a panhandler out there, a beggar. And there he is, he looks terrible. And you see him out there every week. Sometimes the sign says, we'll work for food. Sometimes the sign says, feed my hungry kids. Sometimes the sign says, I'd like a beer. But it always says something. And he's out there and, you know, he, he wants money every time and you want to, i got to help this guy, you think. You have pity on him. And so you go, and, and you go up to the guy, and he just smells terribly. And he looks horrible, and he just has kind of a crazy look in his eyes. But you feel sorry for the guy. And so you just don't pull out your wallet and hand him a few dollars. You know what you do for him? You invite him into your car, and you take him home. You say, mister, I'm going to help you. Here's a guest house in the back of our home. You can live here. Not only do you clean them up and feed them and clothe them, you give them a whole closet full of clothes. You say, live here in our guest home. And you just don't give them some money for food. You say, you can come and eat at my table every night. And I tell you, you've gone far, far beyond what anybody would expect, right? You're a very, very giving person to do all those things. You had a lot of pity on that man to help him out so dramatically. But friends, you could do all of what I've already described but it's a whole other thing for you to say, I'm going to adopt you and make you my son. I mean, nobody would do that. Even if somebody did everything else to take that extra step and say, I'm going to make you a member of this family and I'm going to adopt you. What? You didn't have to do that to help the guy. You didn't have to do that to make him no longer be in the state he was in. My friends, that's what God did. He didn't just save us from hell. He just didn't buy us out of our slavery to sin. On top of all of that, it's pure extra. It's the whipped cream and the cherry on top. It's just the extra. He said, I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to invite you into my family. And you're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. My friends, there's a sense in which this is totally unnecessary for God to do. And the only reason why he does it is because he loves you. He loves you. That's how much he loves you. You wouldn't make somebody a member of your family unless you really loved them. No, it's not just pity. It's not just God feeling sorry for us. He has a positive, deep, true love for us. And that's why John can say, listen, 
Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now, let me speak about this in another term also, just to let you know that this sort of explains something for us that I think mystifies many people. Have you ever wondered, God, why did you ever let Adam do what he did in the garden? Why did you ever let him mess everything up so bad? I mean, it was perfect back then. That's how you want us to be, right? Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and before there was sin, that, that's just where you want us to be. Can I just tell you that that's not where God wants you to be? God's goal has never been to restore us back to the innocence of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because as great as it was for Adam and Eve, and let me tell you, it was great. As great as it was, Adam was never adopted into the family of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Adam and Eve were sons and daughters of God in the sense that the Apostle John says it right here. So as great as Adam's state was, he didn't have that father-son, that daughter-father relationship with God that he wants us to have. That's something that God has saved for those who he has redeemed. And so, friends, do you see, God isn't content just to bring us back to where Adam was. In Jesus, we gain more than Adam ever lost. And that's why God let the whole thing happen. We might stand back and say, well, God, didn't you just want a bunch of perfect people running around the Garden of Eden and all that? And you say, no, because they wouldn't have been my children. They wouldn't have been my sons and my daughters. I had to let them fall so that I could redeem them and buy them back and make them my children. That's why I'd much rather have it the way it is now, God would say. Let me make another application of this. You know, a lot of people walk around today thinking, it's a very common conception both in the church and out at the church, that everyone is a child of God. Every person. And they would believe that everyone is a child of God because God loves everyone. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Is it true that God loves everyone? Yes, it is true. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God loves everyone, even the most lost, distant sinner from him. God loves that person. But does that mean that everyone is a child of God in the sense that John means it here in 1 John chapter 3? Well, not at all. You see, let, let me show you a verse that I think clears this up very, very plainly. Keep your finger there in 1 John chapter 3, but just turn left in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 1. I want to take you to the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12. This is the sense in which John means a child of God. It says, again, that's the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Well, no, not everyone is a child of God, only those who have believed on his name and who have received him. Those are the children of God in the sense that John means it right here. Now, everyone has the right to become a child of God. God isn't pushing some people away and saying, no, you can't be one of my children. Everyone has the right to be a child of God if they will receive him and believe on his name. It's that simple. God has given every person that right. And so, my friends, that's the sense in which God means it. And that's the sense in which we can say that not everyone is a child of God, even though God does love everyone. And so he goes on to say here, 
Again, verse 1, 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now, being a child of God puts you in a different place. It puts you in a different category. Because you've believed on his name, because you've received him, therefore, the world does not know you. Now, he's talking about the world not knowing you. Christians should have that familiarity. They should have that fellowship one with another. I mean, after all, if we're truly children of God, then it should show in our love for our siblings, right? For our brothers and sisters. Now, parents, you know this in your own lives. What's one of the most frustrating things for any parent? It's when your kids are fighting, right? Brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister, whatever, they're fighting. I know speaking as a parent, it's one of the most annoying things you can have. When the kids are fighting with each other and you just try to... And well, think of all the things that, that you say to your kids when they're fighting. You shouldn't fight your brother and sister. You shouldn't fight. We're all one family. You shouldn't fight. You should love each other. Just think of God saying those things to you next time you're fighting with one of your Christian brothers and sisters. Because he's saying the same thing. So if we're all the same family, we should love one another. However, he says, therefore, the world does not know us. Now, this brings up something significant. Because of our parentage, because of our family, the world looks at us and says, I don't recognize you. The world, so to speak, we're all born into the family of Adam by our birth, but then those who believe him, those who have received him, have received the right to become children of God. And so you have two families. You have the family of Adam, and you have the family of the children of God, and, and they don't always see eye to eye. They, they're living in different families. You know, your family, you have distinctive ways that you do things, distinctive customs, and other families don't do it the same way. Well, it's the same way between the family of Adam and the family of the children of God. And to me, this brings up something significant. Because I don't know about you, but when I look out across cultural Christianity. Sometimes I don't want to be identified with it. Sometimes I feel like, like, that's not me. I turn on the TV and I take a look at some lady with about six-inch eyelashes, <laughs> about five pounds of makeup on, you know, and hair of about three feet high. And it's like, man, that's not me. You know, I, I don't identify with that in the slightest way. And sometimes when you see cultural Christianity put forth in that way, it almost makes us want to say, well, you know, I'm not really a Christian like that. And, you know, we start backtracking. But my friends, even if we don't identify ourselves with cultural Christianity, we must identify ourselves with biblical Christianity, with what the Bible is really all about, with what following Jesus is really all about. And if we're doing that, then the world at times won't know us. If the world knows you, if you get along just fine with everybody in the world, then how distinctive of a Christian life are you living? How different are you? There should be some friction. I'm not saying it should be every day in every situation. If that's the case, then you're probably just obnoxious. <laughs> but there should be some kind of friction there. Because you're of a different family. And you shouldn't let the distaste that you have for cultural Christianity make you think, well, then I'm not going to show it out and I'm not going to show myself to be a Christian. Look, we're followers of Jesus. Jesus will deal with his other followers even if they look kind of funny. But that's another matter altogether. We're followers of Jesus. 
I want you to notice the last point here in verse 1. It says, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You see, if we're following Jesus, if we're following in his footsteps, then we should expect at least at times to be treated as he was treated. And friends, the world did not welcome Jesus with open arms. They crucified him. And so if we're never finding ourselves in the face of opposition, that should be a scary thing to us. It probably means that we're just going along with the flow of our culture, with our, with our society, instead of swimming against the stream. Now, verse 2, mm, this really begins to get into it. You see, he's told us what we are and how much God loves us in verse 1. Now in verse 2, he's going to talk to us about our destiny, what awaits for us. Take a look at it. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Well, that's where we are right now, right? We're children of God. And our present standing is plain. Now we are children of God. By the way, do you note the assurance that John has in that? He doesn't say might or maybe or I think so or I hope so. He's confident. Now we are children of God. And I want you to know that this morning you can be confident in your status as a child of God. You really can. You don't have to leave here wondering or hoping or wishing or or banking on the fact that maybe you're a child of God. Matter of fact, I would say that if you are a child of God, you know it this morning. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, if you are a true child of God, the Holy Spirit tells you that you are. He gives you that assurance. And I can't tell you or somebody else can't tell you, but the Holy Spirit tells you. And friends, if you don't have that assurance this morning, you shouldn't leave here without it. You should have that same note of confidence that John had when he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. So our present state we can know. But the future is cloudy. Look at what he says in the next line. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Well, that's a question mark. What are we going to be? You see, we don't know in the kind of detail we would like to know what it's going to be like in the world beyond. In this sense, we can't even imagine what we will be like in glory. Now, if it were possible to take someone who was in their resurrection body, someone that you know and love, had gone on before you, and they're before the Lord right now in their resurrection body, they're, they're glorified before Him. If you could somehow take that person and bring them down and put them down on this platform, I'll tell you something. Every one of us would be strongly tempted to worship that person. Not because they're so great, but because they're just so glorious. And friends, you're going to have that kind of glory in heaven. And we can't even see it. It's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But notice this. Oh, it's great. Going on now in verse 2. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. You see, we're not left completely in the dark about our future state. When Jesus is revealed, we don't know everything what we're going to be like, but we do know this. When he's revealed, either by his coming for us or our going to him, when he's revealed, we shall be like him. Can I just ask you a straight up question here? How does that sound to you? Does that sound pretty good? See, the Bible speaks of God's great plan for our lives. Ready? God's great plan for our lives to make you comfortable in every circumstance. No, no, that's not God's great plan for your life. Um, 
to, to bring you happiness in every relationship in your life. No, that's not God's great plan for your life. Uh, to, to make sure you got plenty of money in your life. No, that's not God's great plan for your life. Do you know what God's great plan for your life is? It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Let me read it to you. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's God's great plan for your life. To make you, to make me like Jesus. His ultimate goal is to make us like Jesus. And here John is speaking of the fulfillment of that purpose. It's fulfilled now. We see him, we're like him. We're completely transformed into his image. Now we are truly like Jesus. Now, let me point out something here. This does not mean that in heaven we cease to be ourselves. It's not like uh, heaven is like the Eastern idea of what nirvana is in Eastern religions. Uh, In Eastern religions, the idea of nirvana or heaven is like a drop of water falling into the drop of the, into the ocean and it just becomes absorbed and then we just become absorbed into the great deity. No, 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 that's not the idea. In heaven, we're going to be individuals. We're going to be who we are. We're, we're still going to have our names. We're still going to have our characters. We're still going to have our personalities, but our character and our nature will be perfected into the image of Jesus. We're not going to be clones of Jesus in heaven. It's just that our own personality and character will be perfected in him. And how does that grab you? Do do you long to be like Jesus? You know, God will never force a person to be like Jesus if they don't want to be. If you don't want to be like Jesus, God's not going to make you. And God has prepared a place for people who don't want to be like Jesus. My friends, it's called hell. I mean, that's a very sobering truth, isn't it? You see, my friends, the the truth is this, is that God gives man what he really wants. If you want to be like Jesus, it'll show forth in your life now, and it'll be fulfilled in eternity. If you don't want to be like Jesus, it'll show in your life now, and it will be fulfilled in eternity. God's not going to twist your arm. God's not going to make you be like Jesus if you don't want to be. But if you want to be like Jesus, it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen. Maybe you looked at your life this week and some things said, wow, that's not very much like Jesus. That's not like Jesus. But you want to be like Jesus. And you're asking God to make you more like Jesus now. I'm here to tell you that that is going to be fulfilled. You're going to come home. It's going to happen. It will be fulfilled. But it's not all going to be fulfilled now. Did you notice how it says it there in verse 2? It says, we shall be like him. That reminds us that even though we're growing into the image of Jesus now, and I look across at lives this morning, and I know that you're more like Jesus now than you were two or three years ago. You're more like Jesus now than you were six months ago. You're growing up into the image of Jesus. But I got news for you. You're not there yet. You've got a long way to go. You, I, Everybody. It's not going to be perfected. It's not going to be completed until we are there with him. But when we see him, we shall be like him. Why? Look at the end of verse 3. This is thrilling. He says, for we shall see him as he is. I'm going to suggest to you that this is the greatest glory of heaven. You think about heaven, don't you? 
You think about what it's going to be like, what it's going to be like when we're all there. Is it going to be like clouds and a lot of harps or, you know, like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz? And you know, what's it going to be like in heaven? You think about these things. But I can tell you something about heaven right now. I can tell you what's going to be the best part of it. Now, it's going to be great to, to see your friends and loved ones who have gone on before you. That's going to be great. You're going to love that. It's going to be great to see the great women and men of God who have gone on before us. I mean, won't that be... Don't you want to go up there and, like, talk to Martin Luther? Don't you want to go up there and talk to the Apostle John, to Moses, to David? I want to sit down and rap with those guys. I think it would be great. That's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious to walk on the streets of gold, to, to see the gates that are made out of a single pearl, to see the angels all around the throne of God, day and night, worshiping Him, never stopping. All of that's going to be fantastic. But none of that is the best part of heaven. The best part of heaven is to see Him as He is. That's what makes heaven heaven. Friends, those great men and women of God, they were down here on this earth. Angels have come down to this earth. You could make a street out of gold. You could make a gate out of pearls. None of that would make this heaven. What makes heaven heaven is seeing him as he is. Now, we don't see it now. Paul said of our present walk, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. He said, now we see in a mirror, but then it's going to be face to face. Now, I don't know if you've read this verse sometime and wondered what he's talking about. Because when you go and look at yourself in a mirror, first of all, you don't see the Lord in the mirror. And secondly, you get a pretty good look at yourself, right? I mean, you, you see what you look like pretty precisely and say, if it sounds like I'm seeing the Lord in a mirror, I should be able to see him pretty clearly. No, but you're thinking of mirrors as we have them today. If you think back of mirrors as they were in Paul's day, in Bible times, do you know what they used for mirrors back then? Polished metal. They would take a piece of metal and polish it a lot. Well, you've looked at your reflection in a piece of polished metal, haven't you? You look funny. You're fuzzy, it's the, wavy, you, you don't see yourself very clearly. Well, that's the best you could see in a mirror back in Paul's day. So he says, now we see in a mirror, it's like we don't see God clearly. The, the image is imprecise. It's a little fuzzy. It's distorted because of our fallenness. But then we're going to see him perfectly. We shall see him as he is. I don't know all what we're going to see. I will tell you what John in Revelation chapter 1 said, what it was like when he saw Jesus. Listen to this. He was dressed in a long robe with a golden breastplate. His head and his hair were white as snow white wool. His eyes blazed like fire and his feet shone as the finest bronze glows in the furnace. His voice had the sound of a great waterfall. And I saw that in his right hand he held seven stars. A sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth and his face was ablaze like the sun at its height. Man, I want to see that. We shall see him as he is. Now, that's not the same Jesus who walked this earth looking as a normal man. I've got news for you. Jesus didn't look like that when he walked the earth. He didn't have a halo around his head. You know, you couldn't just see him. Well, there's the fellow with the halo. That must be Jesus. No, he looked like a normal man. But in heaven now, he's glorified. And we'll see him just as he is. 
Now, at the same time, though Jesus is glorified, we also know this. We know that in eternity, we will also see that he keeps the scars of his suffering on this earth. When you get to heaven, you're going to be able to see the holes in Jesus' hands where he was nailed to the cross. You're going to see the huge wound in his side where the soldier thrust the spear when he was on his cross. My friends, Jesus is going to bear those scars to testify to us throughout all of eternity that he loves us. And what was the ultimate demonstration of that love? Him dying on the cross for us. And so when we see Jesus, friends, it's just not going to get any better than that. Let's conclude with a look at verse 3. He says, And everyone who has this hope in himself, excuse me, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What John's saying is plain. When we have this hope set before us of seeing Jesus just as he is, it has a purifying effect on our lives. When we live in the serious, sober consideration that I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to see him just as he is, friends, that, can, that has to, just has to make you live more purely. It has to make you more concerned about how you conduct yourself. If for some reason you had some inside knowledge and knew that Jesus Christ was returning this next Friday, you'd live a little different Monday through Thursday, wouldn't you? You'd know I'm going to see him just as he is. Well, I'm going to prepare for that. And that's what John says. When we have that hope, well, it has a purifying effect in our lives. I want you to notice something else it says in verse 3. He says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. What's our hope in? Is our hope in heaven? No, not really. Is our hope in being glorified? No, not really. Uh, Is our hope in what God can do in our lives right now? No, not really. Our hope is in what? It's in Him. Now, what's your hope in this morning? Maybe your hope is in a relationship. And you, oh, Lord, if you just fix that relationship, if you just put this relationship together, you just do that, well, Lord, then I got hope, then it's all going to work out. I know, Lord, I know it. That's what you got to do. But your hope's in a relationship. Uh, how about if your hope is in a career? Lord, you put this career together for me, and then, boy, just all those things put me in the right place. Lord, then that's it. That's my hope. I know it. How about your hope is in success, or worse yet, if your hope's in yourself? That's pretty depressing, isn't it? My friends, what does he say? This hope in him. Our hope isn't set in heaven or on anything in earth. Our hope is in him. And let me conclude with one last thought. You see here at the end of verse 2, John draws a connection here. He says, when we see him, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. So John makes the connection between seeing Jesus and being like Jesus. Now, every one of you here this morning see Jesus to some degree or another. And I'm not talking about with your physical eye, but you see him. You know who he is. You know what he's about. And I suggest to you this morning that to the degree that you see Jesus as he is to that same degree, that's how much you like him. 
You see, when we forget who Jesus is, when we really don't know who he is, when we uh, call, go after the cultural Jesus or the Jesus of the cults or the Jesus of uh, human opinion or the Jesus of anything else, friends, you're not seeing him as he is. But if you'll see him as he is, then God will make you like him. God will transform you into his presence, into his person. So, my friends, to the same extent that you see Jesus as he is, to that same extent you're like him in your life right now. So, what things are hindering you from seeing Jesus the way that you should? You know, it's a funny thing. What's bigger, the sun or the moon? Well, the sun is so much bigger than the moon. I mean, you could fit millions of moons inside of the sun. It's not even close. But isn't it funny that the moon, if it's in just the wrong spot, can eclipse the sun? You can't see the sun because the moon's in the way. Wasn't it funny how something so little can get in the way of seeing something so big if it's in the wrong place? Friends, are there things in your life you can't see Jesus as he is because something may be small, something may be trivial. Compared to God, it's nothing. But just like the moon can eclipse the sun, it's gotten in the way. Well, friends, let it pass through. Get it out of the way. Don't let it be an eclipse. And you see God as he is, you'll be like him. Let's pray and ask him to do that in our lives.